Amen. Good morning. It's nice. Nice to see you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Steve Coward. I'm one of the pastors of Reach Church and excited to be here at our Fairhill campus uh, this morning. Usually, uh, for those of you who know me and those of you who don't, um, usually I'm at the Summit Bridge Road campus on Sunday mornings, but excited to be here. See familiar faces, see new faces, and if I don't know you, I look forward to maybe getting to shake your hand and get to know you a little bit after the service uh, this morning. Um, this, today we're going to be continuing our series uh, in Galatians called Astonished. If you have a Bible or a phone or an iPad or whatever you may have, uh, you're welcome to turn with me to Galatians 2 in chapter 11. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. And as our series is a title, Astonished, this morning we're going to see Paul astonished. Um, he's already in the in the letter, he's already been astonished at the Galatians and their behavior. Uh, this morning, we're going to see him astonished at another apostle's behavior, uh, Peter's behavior. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that old movie, uh, 12 Angry Men. Um, it's quite old now, back in the 1950s, um, black and white. Uh, but it's a, a powerful movie where this young man is on trial for the murder of his father. And they're in the jury room. Henry Fonda is like the, the main character in the movie, and he plays one of the jurors. And all the other 11 jurors are ready to convict this boy. They're ready to just put him away. They don't want to hear anything. It's like groupthink, right? They're, they're all in the room together. It's like they're, they're just thinking as this crowd mentality. And Henry Fonda's character is trying to get him to think, well, could it be that maybe he didn't do it? I mean, do, do we really know that he did? And, and then they say, well, look at the knife. This knife is like this unique knife um, with all the, whatever was on it. And hey, I've never seen a knife like that before. It, it had to have been this kid. And then Henry Fonda, he reaches into his pocket and he throws a knife on his table that's identical to the murder weapon. And everybody's like, where, where did you get that? Where did that come from? He says, well, last night I took a walk and I, I went into the neighborhood where the, the kid lives. And about two blocks from his house, I bought that knife in a pawn shop for $6. And of course, everything suddenly shifts, right? And it suddenly shifts because Henry Fonda's character was unwilling to just let things go. He confronted the situation with truth, even when people were all thinking together and, and, and just thinking with this kind of crowd mentality if you will. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, something incredible happens. Listen to this. But when Cephas, now Cephas is Peter, the apostle Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is wild language. This is language that should make us, what in the world is going on here? One apostle, Paul, is calling out another apostle. Just two verses previous, what do we have? But, but Paul <laughs> getting the, the, hand of, of the right hand of fellowship from the other apostles, including Peter. And now two verses later, he's calling Peter out. He's calling Peter out because he stood condemned. This is serious language. As he's saying this about another apostle, what in the world is going on here? What in the world has led to this? 
We'll look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You see, before certain men, before whoever these men are, before they came into the picture, what was Peter doing? Peter was sitting down and he was eating with the Gentiles, Gentiles being the, the um, non-Jewish people, the, the people that didn't grow up Jews like Peter did, like Paul did. And before these people came in to Antioch, Peter, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, and he was eating the same food that they would eat. And while that might not sound that wild to us today, in that day, that was a big deal. Because Peter and Paul had grown up with all the religious laws, all the ceremonial laws surrounding Judaism. And a lot of that had to do with what you ate. There were certain things you could eat, certain things you couldn't eat. And even to the point they made it to where you couldn't eat with Gentiles. Okay, so for for Peter to have been eating with non-Jews, and to have been eating the kind of food that they eat, that was a big, big deal. Back in Acts 10, in verse 10, something incredible had happened in Peter's life. Now, this is prior to what's going on in Galatians now, but this is what happened. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up, and something like a great sheet descending, kind of a weird picture, but this great sheet is descending, being let down by its four corners, and it were all kind of animals, reptiles, birds of the air. This is all stuff that's like unclean, stuff that Peter would have never eaten because he was a good Jew, okay? And then what does God tell him? There came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, just a few verses down, Peter finds himself at a Gentile's house, Cornelius' house, and he goes in, and this is what he says. He says, you yourselves... Know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone from another nation. You know how unlawful it is for me to get together with a Gentile. You know how that is. You, You know the laws, right? You know I'm not supposed to be here. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Something powerful has happened in in Peter's life. He he knows now that he can eat with Gentiles. He's freed from all those those, those former laws that he had to keep in order to stay clean before God, to be able to go to worship, to be able to go do those things. He had to follow all these laws. Well, now those things he knows are behind him. He no longer has to keep those because Jesus has come and Jesus has died for him. There are now no longer any distinctions between Jew and Gentile, because Jesus has come. But then these men, as we see in our passage, these men come. These men, it says, men came from James. James is kind of the head of the church back in Jerusalem. Now, I don't think they actually came from James, but they're claiming 
to come from James, you understand. They're claiming to come from the other apostles back in Jerusalem, and, and what they're doing is, is, is they're coming in and they're whispering into the Galatians' ears. You know, I know Paul, he founded your church here. I know he's the first one. He came and he told you about the incredible gospel of Jesus, and he was right. You are saved by Jesus. You are saved by his sacrifice on the cross, but they began to whisper in their ears, and they said, but in order to go on living, in order to move on the Christian, there's some other things you need to do. It's not enough just that you trust in Jesus. You also need to become Jewish. You also need to follow these Jewish laws. You need to eat like the Jews eat. You need to be circumcised. All of these things began to be piled on to the gospel. And what, what did Peter do? He feared the circumcision party. He feared them. It seems that, that Peter wanted more than anything. What he wanted more than anything was the approval of the Jews, the approval of these people that had come from James and come in. He, he, he wanted them to, sorry. That's funny for you, not for me. What was Peter doing? Peter's actions at this moment were, were not in accord with what he really believed. Do you understand? P Peter knew the gospel. Okay, let's not think by this that somehow Peter believes that you're saved by Jesus plus whatever. Or, or that you have to be a Jew in order to be a believer. Peter doesn't think that. But his behavior is saying that to the watching world. Okay, do you understand the distinction? Peter, whenever he goes into his, his house and he closes the door, and this is actually where Peter confronts him. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, I said to Peter before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Do you see what he's saying? Peter, I, I know that this way that you're acting which you're messaging to the world by only eating with Jews, I know you don't really believe it because I've gone into your house before. I've opened the door and I've seen you there sitting in the corner eating pork ribs and you still have some of that barbecue sauce on your face. Okay, pork being one of those things that you're not allowed to eat. And, and Paul, Paul's kind of saying like, Peter, I've seen you eat pork before. No, that's not exactly what he says. I get that. But, but that's what, what he's saying. He's like, I, I know. I, I know you know what is true. Peter, he's grabbing you by the shoulders. What are you doing? How can you be doing this? He's saying your conduct, Peter, is not in step with the truth of the gospel and you know it. He's not saying, Peter, your theology is wrong. He knows Peter knows the truth. He's saying the problem, the problem, Peter, is not that you're eating or not eating. Okay, that doesn't really matter. The problem is what you are communicating by not eating with the Gentiles. You're communicating something to the Jewish people that, okay, in order to be in Jew Jesus, you really have to be Jewish. And to the Gentiles who are watching on the outside, Peter's actions are saying, well, if we really want to be in Jesus, if we want to really be with Jesus, then maybe do, do we need to become Jewish? There's this major problem here, understand. 
between what's going on in the head, what we believe in the head, what we know to be true, what Peter knew to be true, and then his actions. There is a distinction with what I like to think of as our, his head theology versus his heart theology. I think all of us have a problem with a disconnect between our head theology and our heart theology. We, we know the truth, right? We, we know things like we are saved by grace alone, right? Through faith alone, in Christ alone. We know these things to be true, right? But do we live as though they're really true? Have they made it from our head to our heart? Or do we kind of stick them in there and they kind of go into a filing cabinet? We're reminded of it on Sunday morning, and then they go into a filing cabinet and are kind of put away as we go through the rest of the week. And we say, oh, I, I think I got it from here. So it's for this reason that, that Paul confronts Peter. Luther says that he put Peter's dignity aside for the sake of the truth. Because it was that important. It was that important that he confront publicly another apostle. I mean, this was a big deal. This was no small deal. Now be careful before you begin to think, well, maybe there's some other people that I need to go confront about the way that they're, they're living out of step with the gospel. Okay, What we should be getting from this, I hope, what we will get from this, is instead that there's a problem with us. That we make it more about behavior than about belief. We, we say at times through the way that we live, and this is what Peter was doing, through the way that we live, that, that faith is defined by behavior instead of belief at the foot of the cross. There's a big distinction there. There is a big distinction there. You know, I remember when I was young and come home from church, and my dad didn't usually go to, well, he barely ever went to church with us, even on Sundays. He wasn't even, he, he, he wouldn't even venture that frequently um, to come with us. But I remember so often we'd come home and me and my sister just older than me inevitably would be fighting. And he would say something like, I don't know why you even bother going to church if you're going to come home and act like that. Have you ever said, thought, heard something like that? You do see what Paul is confronting here. He says that they acted hypocritically. That, that, that Peter, along with these other Jews, they were acting hypocritically. What, what does that mean? What does he mean by that? Usually when we hear that term of hypocrites and, and we think of Christians, what is it that we normally think is, well, someone who claims to be a believer, but their life, it just doesn't show it, right? Or, or you know, we think of the watching world and say, oh, you're a, you say you're a Christian, but I see the way that you live. And we think of that as hypocrisy like my dad did. That is not, I think, the hypocrisy that we see here. That is not the type of hypocrisy that Paul is confronting. In fact, it's the reverse. Paul is saying to Peter, Peter, you claim the emblem of Jesus. You claim his emblem and you're wearing it around and you're saying to the watching world, we got it all together. 
we got it figured out. You got If you want to be like me, if you want to wear the emblem of Jesus, then you got to be really good. That's what Peter's actions are saying. That's what those other Jews who are along with him were saying. That's why Paul says that they are acting hypocritically. It's not because they're wearing the emblem of Jesus and, and they're sinning. It's almost as though they're wearing the emblem of Jesus and claiming that they're not. Claiming that they got it all together. That, I believe, is the most hypocritical thing that you or I could do as a believer. Wearing the emblem of Jesus and by our behavior, telling the world that they must get their lives together in order to be a Christian. That, I think, is the height of hypocrisy. That's why Paul got so upset at Peter, because, Peter, do you understand what you're telling the rest of the world? they got to get things together like the Jews. you got to act like the Jews. you gotta, you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps is almost what Peter's actions were saying. That's why Paul got so upset. The world needs to know that believers don't have it all together, that we struggle, that we get mad in traffic like I did on the way here whenever somebody pulled out in front of me and I honked the horn and I got upset. Or like I did this morning whenever, you know, my wife's gone and, and Grayson here and Adeline, I'm trying to get them ready and, you know, I'd called, you know, they were supposed to be all ready and whenever I come down and I'm ready, I'm trying to get here to be here this morning and of course, are they ready? No. Have they done the things that I'd asked them to do? No. So what do I do? I get upset. That's who we are. I'm not saying that God is not at work at me. I'm not saying that he's not changing me and we will get to that later in the book of Galatians. That's not where Paul is right now. We are a messed up people. We need to wear the emblem of Jesus and make sure that the world knows that it's not about having it all together. The world needs to know that we are sinners saved by grace and living by grace, by nothing but Jesus I mean, do, do you get that? Do, do you understand what I'm saying? So back a long time ago, in the 1700s, there was a guy named David Brainerd, and he was a missionary to the Native Americans. And I want to read a bit of this, and I'm going I'm to read it for a bit, so stay with me. But I just want you to know, this is somebody who lived like 300 years ago. And maybe it'll just be speaking to me, but my guess is it'll speak to all of us that 300 years ago, he was dealing with the exact same thing that we're talking about right now. This is what he says. When I was about 20 years of age, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I became strict and watchful over my thoughts, my words, my actions. And I thought I must be very seriously religious because I considered entering the ministry. I spent much of time every day reading my Bible and praying, and I gave great attention to the Sunday sermons, as I trust you are. In short, I had a very good outside, and I trusted entirely in my religious duties, though I was not then aware of what I was doing wrong. You see what he's doing? He's, it's like he's got it all together. He's, put, he's checking all the right boxes. He's got everything together. Though I often confess to God that I, of course, deserve nothing, you know, he's saying the right words, I harbored secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties and all my morality. Although I confessed, in reality, do you see what I'm doing? 
When my heart seemed full of love and faith, I felt that God would be affected by that and would hear my prayers with their sincerity. In other words, I healed myself with my duties. I told myself, God must accept you because look at how wholeheartedly you serve and seek him. Now here was the problem. The more I tried to love God with all my soul, the more I saw how, really, how little I really loved him. The more I sought a soft heart, the more I felt my, how hard my heart was. And I supposed it must stop him before Christ would accept me. You see, it's all about him, isn't it? And one night, I remember in particular when I was walking alone, I'd opened such a view of my sin that I feared that the ground would cleave asunder underneath my feet like a grave. You ever feel like that? Like you're just waiting for the earth to open up and just swallow you whole? I saw it was impossible for me. After the utmost pains to answer the demands of God's law, I saw it condemn me for selfishness and angry and fearful and envious and lustful thoughts, which I could not possibly prevent. I saw that all my contrivances, get this, and projects to effect or procure salvation were utterly in vain. I had thought many times that the difficulties were very great, but now I saw them in a different light, that it was totally impossible for me to do anything towards delivering myself. Do you see where he finally gets to? Then I realized why they're of no avail. When I'd been fasting and praying, when I'd been obeying, I thought I was aiming at the glory of God, but I was doing it all for my own glory. I feel to feel I was worthy. As long as I was doing all this to earn my salvation, I was doing nothing for God and all for me. Do you find yourself in that same trap? Trying to do it, trying to run that treadmill, trying to make God love you. It's going to fall empty every single time. I was actually trying to avoid God as Savior and to be my own Savior. I was not worshiping Him, but using Him. That's what it really is. You see, Brannard's life, he, he, his life was transformed when he finally got the gospel. And so where does Paul take us next? Where does Paul take us after telling us about this confrontation with Peter? He takes us straight to the gospel as Peter does, as Paul does over and over and over again uh, throughout his letters. He does it here. Look at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. <laughs> you know what he's saying there. He's like, I get it. I'm a Jew. I grew up a Jew. I was the Jew of Jews. I was great at it. I was really good at keeping the law. But that's nothing. But that's nothing. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you think in these just two short verses, Paul gets his point across? He says the same thing three times if you didn't catch it. Three times he's basically saying, he's saying it in three different ways, but he says it three times, you are not justified by works. You are not justified by works. You are justified by faith in Jesus. That's the only way. Your works are never going to get you there. 
This is where he goes from confronting Peter to bringing us back to this incredible doctrine of justification is this word that he uses. Meaning that, that all of our sins are pardoned and we're accepted as righteous because we're given Jesus' righteousness. It's incredible. It's this courtroom drama that takes place where we are completely pardoned of all of our sins. There, our, our slate is wiped clean and we are given Jesus' righteousness and he takes our sin upon him. And he pays the penalty for it. It's incredible. It is earth shattering. It should leave you and I in awe. It's not a thing to put in that compartment in our head and close that filing cabinet drawer. And that's what we tend to do when we leave on Sunday morning or we go through our week or maybe there's moments where we're reminded and then we kind of put it back in there and, and close it back up. But it is something that should work its way to the depths of our heart. It should change us. It should transform us. Because we learn and we know that, that law-keeping, that, that being really good is not foundational to faith. The law-keeper Jesus is. Okay? He is the one who's foundational to our faith. He is the one through whom we are washed clean. <laughs> Martin Luther says that we should and that Paul says it here three times, to beat it into our heads. I think we need it beat it, you know, we, we, we need to be beaten the head in a sense with this so that it will go into our, and begin to make that, that, that travel from our heads to our hearts and truly change what we do and what we live. Now, here's the problem. When many people hear this, when we're reminded of, of just how incredibly free grace is, that we can do nothing to deserve it, we begin to ask questions, and that Paul already, he knows. He does this elsewhere, too. He does it in Romans, but look at verse 17. But if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Paul's asking the question that he assumes that they're asking, that assumes maybe we're asking, but don't we have to be good? But don't we have to follow the law, Peter, Paul? Don't we have to live a good life? Don't we have to obey? Paul, you're making it too easy. You can't do this. You're, you're just going to encourage people to live however they want. If grace is really free, we can go and we can confess our sins, and then we can go live and do how, whatever we want. Paul's answer to that for us is, if that's what you're saying, if that's what you're thinking, you still don't get the gospel. You still haven't truly been grabbed by it. You think of it just as an intellectual concept. You haven't been transformed by it because when you go to the foot of the cross and you understand, whenever I go to the foot of the cross and I really understand that I am really forgiven, that I am really washed clean, that as I stand before you, I'm righteous because I've been given Jesus' righteousness, not because I've ever deserved it, not because I'm good enough or smart enough or anything else, but truly, totally because of Jesus. That should affect our hearts. It should change us. It should mold us. It should make us new. Paul continues in verse 18. Paul tells us how he's 
tried, even after all he said, even after understanding the gospel, how he, like you and I, have tried to go back to the law too. Listen to what he says. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Do you hear what he's saying? He's, we, we can't rebuild that which has been torn down. The law has been, in a sense, torn down. It's no longer a means to get to God. We can't use it as such. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be what? A transgressor. I prove myself to have totally missed the point. It doesn't work because all that it will do is condemn. All it will do is condemn us and show us that we're not good enough, that we haven't done it well enough. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. Now, that verse is a verse that many of us have probably memorized, right? And we probably think of that verse as a fight the good fight verse. You know, now I live. The li- you know, like now... I- but understand it in the context. What is the context in which Paul is talking about this? He's talking about it in the context of his dying to obedience. Okay? Dying to getting to God through obedience. He's dying to that. He's dying to the law. That's not what he's talking about. He doesn't say that I live by faithfulness to the Son. He says I live by what? Faith in the Son. That's how he lives. Not by faithfulness to, but faith in the Son. You know, whenever we think about the radical nature of grace, we start, as we said earlier, we start getting concerned sometimes. Have we gone too far if it really is all about grace, if it's all about what Jesus has done. I mean, don't, don't, don't I have to obey? One of, my, one of my friends shared a story of, you know, he's a guy who preaches the radical good news of the gospel. And so people sometimes get upset. You know, it can't be that easy. You're, you're letting people get out of jail for free, if you will. You know, come on, don't they have to and one day he tells a story of a guy who came up to him after the sermon, had his Bible, had a place marked, and he was ready to go. And he says, you, you talk about this grace stuff too much. And he proceeded to read John 14, 15 to him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he says, see... It's not all about grace. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not all about this grace stuff that you're talking about all the time. It's not all about, in our language, this nothing but Jesus stuff that you're talking about all the time. 
I want to meet with you. He's like, well, what do you want? I want to meet with you. I want to sit down. Let's talk about this. So my friend told him, I I would be happy to sit down and talk with you about it. But here's what I want you to do first. I want you to take a notebook, and I want you over the course of from now until we meet, I want you to write every single time that you fail to do this. Every time that you fail to keep his commandments, I want you to write it down. Every time. I want you to write it down. Okay? And then, if you've got that, give me a call and we will sit down and we will meet. Okay? The guy didn't call. Um, He sees him the next Sunday um, at church and he goes up to him to talk to him and say, well, how's it going? How How are you doing with that? And he says, I, I couldn't even make it out of the sanctuary. I wasn't even able to make it out of the sanctuary. Because, I mean, just think. I mean, a day, two days, a week, you, you try to do this. Try to just write it down. And just think of the number of things that you're missing because we're so blinded by the sin in our life. And so my friend told him, he looked at the man and he said, aren't you glad it's all about grace? Aren't you glad it's all about Jesus? And it's not about you keeping his commandments because you're not going to be able to do it. Aren't you glad that it's all about Jesus who kept the commandments for us? Go, try it if you need to. If you're struggling with it, if you continue to struggle with what we're preaching, that we are saved by nothing but Jesus, go, try it. See how it works out for you. I'd be glad to sit down and talk with you. Peter would be glad to sit down and talk with you about how you're doing. You bring in your list. Let's see how we're doing. Because it really is all about Jesus. We really are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It really is all about nothing but Jesus. You can't do it. You and I, not just talking about you, we live the life of a hypocrite. But not the hypocrisy that we're used to hearing about. We have been given, if you are a believer here this morning, you've been given that emblem of Christ to wear, if you will. And then, what do we do? We try to go and live life on our own, thinking that somehow, some way, even after what we said this morning, we'll leave here and we'll go home and think, somehow, some way, I can make God happy with me. I can make him like me. If I, if I act good enough this week, maybe he'll really love me. Maybe he'll really have to shower me with good things. And we totally miss the mark. We try to make him love us. And the gospel says he already does. You already have his love. You cannot make him love you anymore. If you were to go out for a week and try to do this, you were to sell out to it, he would not love you any more than he does right now. Our problem is we struggle to believe it. We think that somehow we can con him into loving us more. And it's because of this struggle that we need to do what Luther said, and we need to beat ourselves, in a sense, 
in our head continually with this good news of the gospel. That we're not saved by our works, our obedience. We are saved by Jesus and Him only. We're saved by nothing but Jesus. And it's not only the way that we're saved, it's the way that we are able to go on living. It's the way that I'm going to be able to make it through today. It's the way that I'm able to live with myself after I fussed at my kids this morning, after I get angry in traffic. Because I already have Him. And He's already satisfied with me because He's satisfied with Jesus. Every moment of our life, we must be reminded that it's not about our behavior. It's not about our behavior. It's about our faith at the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess we are so quick. We are so quick to think somehow we can do it, that somehow we can save ourselves, that somehow we can make you happy with us. And we fail to see that you're already satisfied with us because you're satisfied with Jesus. And would you get that from our head, that truth, a, a truth I think we've probably heard over and over again, and we, we, we know the truth. Would you get it from our head to our hearts so that we, we, we don't just know it to be true, but we really believe it, believe it in a way that transforms and changes our hearts. We need you to do this work. <laughs> Would you beat it into our heads in whatever way that may need to happen? Would you help us not to compartmentalize it, to put it in some filing cabinet drawer and file it away, but not might this week we truly live out of the fact that we are saved by Jesus and that that is the only way that we can keep on living. We thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for us we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.